At the beginning of the Dreamtime, four creator beings were sent by the great creator's spirit to mold the shape of the land. They created hills and valleys and forests and fields. When their work was done, these four creator beings took the form of giant humans and settled beside a lake they called Tay-Rock. This spot is known as the ancestral home of the Aboriginal people of Australia. Many believe that the descendants of those four creator beings continue to perform their special duties as spiritual leaders of their communities today. But back to those original four. Three of them went walkabout. They traveled the great vastness of Australia. It's said that this is why the Aboriginal people live all over the continent, on the coast, in the rainforest, and in the middle of the dusty outback. But one of those four creator beings stayed beside the lake. He crouched down to the earth, and his giant body became a mountain ridge. His head became a second mountain, smaller and more rounded. Now, it's not clear why, but at some point in time, this creator opened his mouth and spewed liquid fire from his throat. It spread all the way to the sea. Meanwhile, his teeth became enormous rocks and were flung into the air a great distance. Today in Australia, that story is pretty well known. And if you're thinking that what I just described sounds like a volcanic eruption, you're not the only one who's made that connection. Using those stories as a guide, Historians say they have found the original lake where the creators settled, the one called Tay Rock. It's what people now call Lake Conda. It's about a four-hour drive west of Melbourne. You might be expecting a deep oasis with waterfalls and everything, but Lake Conda doesn't look like that at all. I mean, it's barely a lake at all. It's pretty shallow. Most of the water has been drained, so really it's a swamp more than anything. And just to the east, where maybe you're expecting to see two giant mountains the size of Everest, well, there's a couple of hills. And to be fair, Australia is a pretty flat country, so the threshold for calling a hill a mountain is a little lower than it is in other places. But anyway, those two mountains are now called Mount Napier and Mount Eccles. The summit of Mount Eccles, if you can call it that, is just 580 feet above sea level. I mean, you could walk from the base of it to the top in less than half an hour. Okay, so I've painted the scene. A couple of low-lying hills beside a swamp. That's it. There is nothing here that would tell a casual observer that anything dramatic ever happened here. And yet, what happened here could not be more dramatic. A giant creator being opened their mouth and spewed fire. So, geologists went looking. They used aerial photography. They analyzed the soil and the rocks, and they came to the conclusion that yes, there had indeed been a volcanic eruption here. That meant that what they'd been calling Mount Eccles was actually Buj Bim, the giant head of the creator being. And now, the most interesting question of all, when did it erupt? Well, using argon-argon dating, which is a method of radiometric dating of rocks, they determined that the eruption happened 36,900 years ago. Think about what that means. The only plausible explanation for that story to exist is that there were humans living there at the time and they saw something, something really incredible, a volcanic eruption. 
And then they told their kids about it, and they told their kids, and now I'm telling you about it in a podcast. Not 900 years later, 36,900 years later. We tell a lot of old stories on this show, but I'm here to tell you that the story of the eruption of Buj Bim is the oldest story in the history of stories. A few episodes back, I was marveling at how accurate the Inuit oral histories are. Remember when they helped find Franklin's lost ships? Well, those stories were 160 years old. The story of Cleopatra and the snake is like 2,000 years old. Sodom and Gomorrah? That's probably the story of an asteroid that destroyed a city in Jordan 3,600 years ago. Noah's Ark, that's probably a massive flood that was 7,000 years ago. But this, this story of Buj Bim erupting has survived 36,900 years of retelling. And why has it lasted so long? Well, for one thing, it's a heck of a good story. I'm Dan Riskin, and this is Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life, an original podcast by Symar. They are the research group doing trials on a new approach to treating type 2 diabetes. They've discovered a hormone called hepatolin. It works in conjunction with insulin to control your blood sugar levels. And they've created this podcast to share the story of their research and their clinical trials. This is the 10th and final episode of our second season. And our focus today is on storytelling, why we love stories, how we react to them, and how science communicators and researchers can embrace the idea of storytelling to get their message out there. So without further ado, here is another great story about a story. It's a Sunday night in 1938. All across America, people are at home relaxing. Mom has finished cleaning up the kitchen. Kids are supposed to be going to bed, but they've begged to stay up just a little bit longer. Dad's in his easy chair, slowly, methodically packing tobacco into his pipe. And the radio is on. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. We're still a couple decades away from televisions taking over people's living rooms, so the radio is what brings the family together in one room. There aren't a lot of stations to choose from, so pretty much everyone is listening to the same thing at the same time. Newspaper reports the next day will tell us that 32 million people were listening to this particular program. And this is what they heard. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Everyone in the room stops what they're doing to listen. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. Grover's Mill is just a short drive from the radio station. And 10 minutes later, they have a reporter on the scene. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. But I can see the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. Huge is an understatement. It's the size of a large house, maybe bigger. Hard to tell because it's stuck in the ground at the bottom of the crater it made. Curious spectators start arriving. The police are there, but they don't know what to do. 
The reporter finds the owner of the farm and interviews him. Well, as I was saying, I was listening to the radio. Of course he was. Everyone was. And then you saw something. I seen a kind of greenish streak and then zingo. Something smacked the ground. Knocked me clear out of my chair. This goes on for about 10 minutes. It's an incredible mystery for the people in Grover's Mill, sure, but also for those millions of radio listeners waiting for the next news bulletin. The radio station keeps going back and forth between the music performance and the live reports. The top blue! Look out there! Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. The top of the cylinder twists like the lid being screwed off a jar by an invisible hand. And then it falls off. Someone's crawling someone or something. I can see turning out of that black hole through luminous disks. The eyes, it might be a face. Something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. Oh yeah, I can see the thing's body now. It's large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but that's a face. It's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. It gleamed like a serpent. The mouth is a kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seemed to oh, quiver and pulsate. And the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. I think it's worth pointing out right here that you're experiencing this much the same way the original listeners did. The reporter's doing their best to describe the scene, but your imagination is filling in all sorts of details as you listen. Your aliens probably look a lot different from what I'm picturing. But regardless of how you envision them, sitting in your family room, hearing this unfold, well, it's terrifying. On the ground in Grover's Mill, it's getting tense. 30 police officers have formed a line around the pit. The crowd has grown, but they're keeping their distance. Three men, the police chief and two other officers, approach the aliens. They've tied a white handkerchief to a pole. On Earth, that's a sign of peace, but I'm not sure it means the same thing to aliens. Wait a minute, something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! The whole field's caught up by the woods. The barns, the, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. It's coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. The broadcast continues. They explain how the aliens use large pods with legs that walk like giant spiders to move around. They use their heat ray to attack individual people, and they release toxic black gas which kills dozens of people at once. And eventually, the Secretary of the Interior makes a statement. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. The military confronts the invaders. They use machine guns and armored vehicles, fighter planes, bombers, but nothing can stop the invasion. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. 
For the audience listening at home, this was too much. They panicked. Many of them bundled up their families, headed to churches. All over New York and New Jersey, houses of worship turned into temporary relief centers filled with hundreds of terrified families. People with family in the area around Grover's Mill tried to call them or the nearby hospitals to see if they were safe, overwhelming the phone lines. The New York City Department of Health activated their emergency response team. In the nearby town of Orange, New Jersey, a man ran into a movie theater where nobody was listening to the radio and screamed to the crowd about the invasion. A minute later, the theater was empty. But of course, anyone who knows anything about this story already knows the punchline. It wasn't real. The aliens, the invasion, the deaths, all just a story. You are listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The War of the Worlds radio drama is an incredible example of how powerful a well-told story can be. The evidence was there for all to see, real people taking dramatic actions in response to a fictional tale. A lot of things have to be in place for that to work. I mean, you have to know what situation your audience is in. In this case, they're at home listening to the radios. And then you have to tailor your style to that audience. In this case, imitating a series of news bulletins. And you need to have characters that people care about, like the reporter risking his own life to keep everyone else informed. And lastly, you need to have stakes. You have to give your audience an answer to the question, why does this matter to me? Well, in this case, that's pretty obvious. It matters because there's an alien in a giant metal spider machine with a heat ray headed to your house. But there's one more twist to this story. Those reports of people panicking, rushing to the church, the guy in the movie theater, even the fact that the radio listenership that night totaled 32 million people, none of that was true either. You see, I got all those details from the New York Daily News, an article that was on the front page the morning after the radio broadcast. The headline was, Fake Radio War Stirs Terror Through the U.S. Now, it wasn't just the Daily News. Newspapers from New York to Chicago to San Francisco all claimed that mass panic had been started by an irresponsible, intentionally deceptive radio broadcast. But in the 85 years since then, no one has been able to show that there was any real panic that night. I mean, to panic, you'd have to have missed the top of the show where they identified this as a piece of science fiction. And you'd have to believe that this entire alien invasion happened in less than half an hour. And you'd have to believe that all of it conveniently took place right during prime evening listening hour. And of course, you'd have to believe in aliens. But that last one's not as much of a stretch. In short, there was no panic. No one was really scared, except in the fun way that you might get scared at a haunted house, when you know it's not real, but it's fun to get scared anyway. You see, the newspaper people were telling their own fictional story, and they were doing it for a very specific reason. They were fighting off an invasion of their own. In the 1930s, newspapers were in their heyday. They were popular, reliable, and very profitable for their owners. But radio had invaded their world. Advertisers were beginning to spend some of their marketing budget on this newer, more exciting medium. Newspapers, and the people that owned them, and the people who worked for them, 
didn't like that. So when the opportunity arose for them to brand radio broadcasters as reckless fools spreading falsehoods and creating mass panic, well, they weren't going to pass up on that opportunity. And that is why today a lot of people still repeat the story of nationwide hysteria, because that was also a story well told. Okay, this probably isn't the first time you've listened to this podcast, so now you're probably thinking, Dan, what does that have to do with science? Or if you really know our show, you're wondering, Dan, what does this have to do with Symar and their work to achieve a breakthrough in the treatment of type 2 diabetes? Well asked, dear listener. Here's the link. Scientists have been telling stories for centuries. And their stories have to be just as compelling as fictional radio plays and ancient tales about volcanoes. So what does a compelling science story look like? Well, there's a YouTube channel called ASAP Science. They have over 10 million subscribers, and they've built that audience by being very creative in the way they present their episodes. But rather than me explain to you what they do, I decided to bring in one of their hosts, Gregory Brown, to explain their approach. Our whole goal is trying to make science make sense for people who were maybe told that science wasn't for them. So a little bit about how you choose your stories. You're not just picking the one that you think has the biggest impact factor. You're talking about social justice and other things. So what goes into picking a good science story for you? So if I think about YouTube, it is a specific social media platform. So we really are forced to think about it and it has changed over the years. They've changed their algorithm. So now your subscribers don't see your video unless the first people who see that video click on it. Now we kind of have to really figure out how to make the most compelling title and a thumbnail that's interesting and catchy enough that people are going to click on it and then they're going to be actually given a lot of detailed, interesting scientific information. A great example is I wanted to talk about microplastics and chemicals and these things that these corporations are essentially like leaching into our bodies in sneaky ways. And one of the things that's happening is that some of these chemicals, if consumed in certain ways, they predict could be slowly shrinking penis size in men over time. So it's like, okay, there you go. Your penises are shrinking. Eggplant emoji, Everyone's clicking it, but it's actually a really nuanced depiction of biochemistry wrapped in a title that is kind of hard to not click. So in this landscape, I mean, if you think of proper scientific information as good vegetables that are good for your brain, you've yeah. got to create these thumbnails and these these headlines that are that look like candy so people will mm-hmm. jump on it, or I guess look like eggplant emojis so that people will <laughs> click on them and then they end up getting their vegetables. Yeah, that's always been what we've been doing, but I feel like it's become more extreme. It's not like we've done anything different since the beginning, but it feels like we're in a more extreme place where we have to make these things really catchy to people. And that's very hard, especially when talking about the climate crisis and especially when talking about the pandemic. Different ways of reaching audiences, right? So if I compare, say, reading Nature magazine as a scientist and looking at p-values and graphs and all that stuff and reading an abstract and all the enthusiasm is taken out of it so that we can be (laughs) impartial, as opposed to what you're doing. So what do you think YouTube or the other formats that you work with, what do you think that they bring that you just don't get from looking at a magazine? Honestly, I used to say a science degree is like, a degree in a different language. You learn how to read these articles that absolutely seem like gibberish to many people. And it's a beautiful skill to be able to understand that language. 
But it is so sad that I can't give this to someone and ever expect them to understand because there's such a high threshold of understanding you have to have before you can even comprehend these things. Yeah. So that's frustrating. That's not going to go away. I get the importance of it, but it makes it very obvious why our job and many other people who are science communicators is so essential. This information needs to be explained to the masses and you just can't rely on the core journals to do that. And I love Nature Magazine. I read it every week. But when I read them, I'm like, oh, this is just lacking, honestly, a voice, an opinion, fun. These things are fascinating. The things that we're talking about are our own bodies, the plants in our home, the freaking universe. These things are so interesting. And it feels like through science and the culture of science, it's just been beaten out of us that any fun, any joy is like a sign of weakness or lack of accuracy. Yeah. Well, I think it was Richard Feynman said that if you show any enthusiasm for your idea, you're being a bad scientist. That's a really interesting quote because we see it in so many different ways. I'm such an excited person. I always have been. That's the way I'm going to be. And it's hard sometimes to just have a lot of, I think it's unvalid criticism around my excitement. And I'm like, this is a science issue. We don't get to see people who are excited all the time. Unless there's four kids or something. It's weird. It's weird. So for you, what the media that you work in allows is that enthusiasm. That's what comes through. At least for us. like I feel so happy that we're still doing well and being successful. And we've really leaned into that. But a lot of our peers who are doing really well, too, are very good at having stoic personalities. And it does really well as well. Like YouTube isn't just this place of joy and fun and hilarity. It's very serious. We're kind of a bit of an anomaly to that. And I'm surprised it almost works sometimes. And our audience is different than I think a lot of our peers. I think there's so much more room for this. So much more of an opportunity. And there's so much lacking. It's not because we exist and a few other people I can name who are like us exist. Does it feel like in any way this is the accurate amount of people who are doing what we should be doing? That's great, Greg. You've answered all my questions. I really appreciate your thoughts. No, those are great questions. That was fun. Oh, it was fun. Yeah. So, whether it's an article in Nature Magazine or a video on a YouTube channel, telling compelling stories is an essential part of science. And that's why SciMar decided to make this series. It's why we've shared all these stories, and it's why I'm thrilled to tell you we're going to be back for a third season in the very near future. Until then, I'm Dan Riskin. Thanks for joining me on Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life, an original podcast by Symar. One last thing. The other technique that the War of the Worlds producers used to make their show more authentic sounding was that there were no commercials for the first 36 minutes. They figured in a real emergency, no radio station would be airing ads for dish soap, so they did the same. Now in this show, we take a different approach. We're not trying to fool you at all. Quite the opposite. So we put our commercials front and center. You've heard me say very clearly that this show is produced by Symar. And hey, if you've made it here to the end of our 21st episode and you still don't know who they are or what they do, check them out. They're at symar.ca. <laughs>